0: The South American country of Bolivia gained its independence from Spain in the year 1825. But since becoming a country, Bolivia has had over 190 different governments. That's an average of nearly one revolution a year. Who's on the throne in Bolivia? (laughs) Well, ask me tomorrow, we'll let you know. It changes daily, but this is not an issue in the kingdom of God. For in tonight's passage, Jesus proves that he is king, he is sovereign over nature and demons and disease and even death. Isaiah prophesied the government will be upon his shoulders. And then later, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Jesus is the indisputable king in God's kingdom. And yet sadly, Jesus' own brothers refused to see his majesty until after his resurrection. We learn tonight that the demons believe before his own family. We pick it up in verse 19. Then his mother and brothers came to him. Now notice Luke doesn't mention Joseph. Apparently by this point Joseph had died. According to Matthew chapter 13 verse 55, after the birth of Jesus, Mary and Joseph had at least four more sons And at least two more daughters. Here Jesus' mom and brothers, they track him down. They're concerned. They need to talk. But they could not approach him because of the crowd. And it was told him by some who said, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. His family's here hoping for a little one-on-one. Luke doesn't actually tell us why Mary and the boys had come to see Jesus, but perhaps they saw that he was on a dangerous course. Jesus had been agitating the religious hierarchy. They could see an ugly collision on the horizon. Again, according to John chapter seven, verse five, at this point, Jesus's own brothers had yet to put their faith in him as Messiah. He was their brother, Mary's boy. How could he be God's son? That was their thought process. Perhaps Mary, though, saw his identity a bit clearer. She had more information, obviously, from uh, the miraculous birth and the angels' pronouncements. And yet on Jesus' last visit home to Nazareth, you remember, he almost got thrown off a cliff. Mary saw all that. His brothers questioned his sanity. Mary cared about his safety. And they both had a concern that combined. They wanted to see him. They needed to talk. But in verse 21, Jesus actually redefines his family. He answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He said, Here's my family, those who hear my words and obey. Did those words hurt his mom? I suppose they did. Did they bother his brothers? You bet. But you can't please God and not offend your unbelieving family. It inevitably happens Jesus' comment, though, was true. There are ties that run deeper than physical family. Allegiance to God is stronger glue than the same last name. Earthly relationships last, oh, maybe 60, 70 years, but the family of God is eternal. It's been said blood is thicker than water, but spirit is thicker than blood. Jesus' real family are those who climb on board the boat of faith. And speaking of a boat, verse 22 tells us, Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. Notice his words, they're important. Jesus said, let us cross over. You won't go under when Jesus promises you'll cross over. But as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. Now, the Sea of Galilee is notorious for changing weather. One year on our visit to Israel, we experienced this firsthand. We arrived on top of Mount Arbel, which overlooks the Sea of Galilee, under clouds and in a midst, but within minutes, the clouds dissipated. And the sun broke out. We even got a beautiful rainbow. But you know, this can happen in reverse. Sudden storms can arise. This lake, the Sea of Galilee, it sits 685 feet below sea level. And it's surrounded by mountains, some as high as 3,000 feet. The topography of the region is shaped like a funnel. Cold air pours in from the north over the Golan Heights, and it collides with the hot air that settled over the lake. What results are sudden storms. Storms can pop up with no warning. In fact, in 1992, it was reported that there were 10-foot-tall waves crashing into the town of Tiberias there on the Sea of Galilee, caused extensive damage. In 10-foot waves, a small fishing boat doesn't stand much of a chance. And that's why Luke puts it, they were in jeopardy. And the disciples came to him, and they awoke him saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. Notice this, the boat is rocking, it's pitching, it's rolling, it's taking on water, it's just about to capsize. The disciples are in a panic, while Jesus snoozes. Can you imagine? You've heard the expression, that man could sleep through a hurricane. Well, it was literally true of Jesus. Obviously, he wasn't the least bit frightened, was he? He wasn't concerned about the storm. Then he arose and he rebuked the wind and the raging of the water and they ceased. And there was a calm. Jesus did to the storm what he did to the fever that had racked the body of Peter's mother-in-law. He rebuked it. You remember you rebuke. That's how you put a demon in its place. You rebuke it. Could it be this storm was Satan's attempt to drown Jesus? To do away with God's only means for our salvation? And Jesus rebuked the devil in his attempts to end his life. But Jesus not only rebuked the storm outside the boat, notice he rebuked the lack of faith within the boat as well. He says to them, where is your faith? And this is the point of every storm. Remember, the stress in my life may just be a test of my faith. If King Jesus is aboard your boat, the Lord is sovereign over wind and waves and weather and nature. Don't you come unglued. Learn to trust the captain. We need to realize that our lives are like the Sea of Galilee. Serious squalls can pop up in life. They can happen in an instant. Panic and fear might grip our hearts. And yet we have nothing to fear when Jesus is in our boat. He can calm a storm in a single word. He can calm the storms in our lives if we learn to trust him. We need to trust Jesus even when he seems to be asleep. He can end that storm in a second if it's his will. Well, they were afraid and marveled saying to one another. Notice they went went from being afraid of the storm to being afraid of, of Jesus. Wow, what power. Here's a man who commands the wind and waves and they obey him. And they said to one another, who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. You know, in Luke chapter 5, after Jesus told the paralytic to rise and take up his mat, and he did, the people there responded, we have seen strange things today. They were enthralled with what Jesus had done. But now after he commands the storm, they ask, who can this be? You see, their curiosity has now graduated. They've gone from being preoccupied with what he's doing to who he is. But Jesus is going to take them one step further. We'll get to it next week in chapter 9. He's going to discuss where he's going. They know what he did. They know who he is. But they also need to know where he's going because he's headed to the cross. Well, verse 26 tells us, Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee, Gadara, or on some maps it appears as Gergesa. It was on the eastern bank of the lake. And when he stepped out on the land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs. Now the topography on the east side of the lake is much different from the western shore. The eastern bank ascends rapidly. It's the beginning of the Golan Heights. And the area is dotted with numerous caves. These caves or tombs were the demoniac's home. Here was a madman. No other explanation. A gang of demons had roughed him up and stole his sanity. He walked among the caves naked and ostracized from others and lonely and angry. Now when he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Notice the demon spoke through the man. It's ironic, after Jesus rebuked the seed, the disciples asked, Who can this be? But the demon had already figured it out. He knew that Jesus was the Son of God. Verse 29 tells us, For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Dr. Luke now gives us a glimpse into this man's horrible existence. Demonic seizures would grip his entire body. Demon possession caused him to thrash around with supernatural strength. The guy would go berserk. Not even shackles could restrain him. Jesus asked him, saying, what is your name? And the demon said, Legion. because many demons had entered him. Legion. A Roman legion was an army of about 6,000 troops. Obviously, multiple, hundreds if not thousands of demons had taken up home inside this man. I like how J. Vernon McGee translates the demon's answer. He says, what is your name? Jesus says, what is your name? And he says, mob. A mob of demons possessed this man. Verse 31. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now, here is a revealing insight into the nature of demons. Demons don't like to be disembodied spirits. Demons seek a house. They seek a habitation. They they want to dwell in a person's body. You know, the Holy Spirit wants to indwell our lives. He inhabits a believer in order to transform him into the image of Jesus. Evil spirits also want to inhabit a body. But they choose an unbeliever. In order to further deform the image of God in that person. Demons specialize in vandalism. They enter God's house and they try to deform his image. In Matthew 12 verse 43, Jesus said, When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. Demons desire a body. Now, a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain, and they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Now, understand, a demon cannot inhabit a Christian. God's Spirit lives in believers, and the Holy Spirit is not going to bunk with an evil spirit, trust me. Once Jesus converted this man, he was off limits to the demons. But the demons wanted a body. Where, Where would they go? And they saw the swine feeding on the field, uh, on, the, on the hill next to the lake. You know, 2 Corinthians 6 makes this clear that a Christian can't be demon-possessed. You need to get this. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us, What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, and communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? The Holy Spirit will never hang out with an evil spirit. Therefore, a Christian can never be demon-possessed. If you're a Christian and a demon walks by, he sees a no vacancy on your shingle. On the other hand, if you don't know Christ, you're vulnerable to demons and to the havoc they can wreak in your life. You see, demons want a body, preferably a human body. But when there's not one available, anybody will do. Anybody is better than nobody, apparently for a demon. Demons sing, if you can't be with the one you love, honey, love the one you're with. And this is why they asked to be sent into the swine. Apparently, a gig with a pig is better than no gig at all. Well, then the demons, they went out of the man and they entered the swine and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. You know, the story Really helps to illustrate the depravity of the human spirit. Sadly, this man had tolerated the presence of these demons for a long time, and yet the pigs couldn't handle them for a few minutes. The man had a greater tolerance for evil than the pigs. As soon as they entered the pigs, they went nuts. They ran violently down the slope, we're told. You could say the swine flew. Yeah. They rushed down the slope into the lake. They went hog wild. The pigs drowned. They Apparently, they, they all committed suicide. <laughs> but don't feel too bad for the pigs. You know where they went, don't you? Yeah, they went to hog heaven anyway. <laughs> when those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. This became known as the case of the deviled ham. The pig I'm out of jokes now, so we, The pig feeders, they told the story to the townspeople there in Gadara. Then they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind, and boy, it blew their minds. And they too were afraid. And they also, who had seen it, told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. I I want you to notice three signs of mental wholeness. Here's three ways to define sanity. Here's this man. He's been racked by demons. He's been possessed. He's been driven nuts. He's been driven, he's been off his rocker for years. And now all of a sudden they see him and they see him sitting at Jesus' feet. Here's a beautiful picture of of mental wholeness. First, the man was under authority. When you get your right mind, you're able to submit to authority. He was sitting at Jesus' feet. He was no longer thrashing around wildly. He was sitting now calmly. He had accepted responsibility for his actions, and he had surrendered his life to Jesus. That's a mark of sanity. Second, he had returned to a moral center. The demoniac's nakedness had revealed a lack of shame on his part. This demon had robbed the man of all morality and decency and self-respect, You know, I see a close connection between demonism and nudity. Satanic influence will mute a man or a woman's natural inhibitions. They'll throw off all restraint under the influence of a demon. The fact that the man now has clothes on indicates that he's returned to his sanity. He he now has a sense of right and wrong. Third, he's in his right mind. He's now thinking clearly he has a whole new outlook on life. He, he no longer fears Jesus. Gone is the paranoia that, caused, that was caused by a sin. The man is now able to accept and receive the love that Jesus has for him. And you know, this threefold picture of sanity, it's a great description of what Jesus wants to do in all men and in all women. Jesus brings us under his authority. We repent of our sin. We submit to his lordship. He restores morality and integrity to our lives. Then he frees us from fear and he helps us to receive God's love into our lives. Here's a beautiful picture. The man sitting at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. Verse 37. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them for they were seized with great fear and so he got into the boat and he returned. You know, one commentary, commentator uh, Describes their reaction as too much change, too fast, and they were scared. Too much change, too fast, and they were scared. You know, often folks get used to their bondage. They get used to their sinful lifestyle. People sometimes accept sin and bondage as the status quo. And when Jesus works a miracle, it upsets the apple cart. It irritates some people. Now, I suspect there may have been more to it here. They obviously were raising swine. And, of course, sausage and bacon were off limits to the Jews. Perhaps they feared that Jesus would damage their economy if he stayed and if he actually settled down. Notice where Jesus is not wanted, he gets into the boat and he leaves. Now, the story isn't quite over. Now, the man from whom the demons had departed begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away saying, return to your own house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way and proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. You know, this is the common command that Jesus gives to a new convert. Family and friends are those who can best appreciate the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Hey, before you charge out into the world to preach the gospel, make sure you head home. And you share the good news of Jesus with the people who know you best. Verse 40 tells us, So it was when Jesus returned, that is to the other side of the lake, back to Capernaum, that the multitude welcomed him. For they were all waiting for him, and behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. Now whenever we go to Israel, I always teach a Bible study, in Jairus' synagogue. It's one of the best preserved synagogues in all of Israel. On this particular day, the ruler of the synagogue, this dignified Jew, he comes and he falls down, the scripture says, at Jesus' feet, and begged him to come to his house, for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age, and she was dying. Now, it must have been quite a sight, This powerful religious figure humbling himself, bowing down in desperation at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of this itinerant preacher from Nazareth. And yet very few experiences in life tackle a man's pride and bring him to a point of humility, that bring him to his knees faster than a threat to one of his children, especially his little princess. This man is desperate. His daughter's life is on the line. So he comes to Jesus. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years. And notice the contrast here. How old was Jairus' little girl? 12 years. She was 12 years old. She had been born with a silver spoon in her mouth for 12 years. All she had known was a merry, happy life, whereas those same 12 years had been misery for this woman. They both were ending a dozen years. One was about to pass from life to death. The other was about to pass from death to life. And isn't this how life works? I mean, you never know what's next. All of a sudden, the tables can turn instantly. In the words of that 20th century philosopher Forrest Gump, life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Circumstances can change radically without any warning. Expect the unexpected in this life. Well, notice too, Luke tells us this woman had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. You know, today this woman would be a candidate for a hysterectomy. Isn't it interesting that we learn from Dr. Luke, not Matthew, by the way, but Dr. Luke, that she had wasted all her money on physicians. Jewish doctors had some strange remedies for women with menstrual problems. The Talmud, a book of rabbinical commentary, proposed 11 different cures for this one malady, and all of them were outlandish. For example, if she carried a kernel of of barley corn found in the dung droppings of a white female donkey, she would be healed. Pretty preposterous. Another one. If she took three pints of Persian onions, boiled them in oil, and drank them, she would be healed. I mean, this woman had wasted all of her saving on these kinds of cures, and she was still bleeding to death. And the worst dimension of her suffering... It wasn't the physical, but it was the spiritual and the social aspects. A woman with this kind of malady was unable to enter the temple or even go to the synagogue. She was barred from public worship. The little girl had basically lived in her daddy's synagogue. This woman had been forbidden to even enter its doors. But she came from behind And touched the border of Jesus' garment. And immediately, her flow of blood stopped. In Jewish culture, the border or the hem of a person's garment spoke of his authority. This woman believed that Jesus was king of God's kingdom. He was king over nature. And he was king over disease. That he had the authority over sickness. And if she could just solicit that authority, he would deliver her from her dreadful illness verse 45 tells us and Jesus said who touched me who touched me now recall they were all they were passing down a crowded street it was sort of like a mosh pit i mean folks were crowding in on every side what do you mean who touched you jesus everybody's touching you. everybody's bumping up everybody's rubbing shoulder to shoulder here well when all denied it peter and those with him said master the multitude strong and press you and you say who touched me But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. You know, it's been said, God loves each one of us as if there's only one of us to love. I like that. Imagine our Lord gets prayed to every single minute of every single day by millions of believers all around the world. Heaven's switchboard must blink like a Christmas tree. And yet Jesus has time to take each and every call. I believe he already knew who touched her. But he wanted to give the woman an opportunity to step out of the crowd and acknowledge her faith publicly. This is why pastors sometimes give altar calls. Jesus knows us privately and personally, but he wants us to respond to him publicly. He knows that our faith needs to go public. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. She shares her testimony and the fact that Jesus has healed her. I wonder why she was so reluctant to step forward. Perhaps she felt that she had encroached on Jesus She didn't understand his willingness to heal, perhaps. Or maybe she thought that he would demand payment if she knew that he had had healed her. I mean, she had wasted all her money on physicians. But I love what Jesus says to her. He says, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Tonight, if you're miserable, if you've wasted all your money searching for in vain for silly cures, if you looked in all the wrong places for what you need, I challenge you, stop right now. Reach out. Touch Jesus. Submit to his authority. Believe in his power and authority and let him stop the bleeding in your life. He'll do it. If you'll trust him. But what about Jairus' daughter? Verse 49. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Do not be afraid, only believe, and she will be made well. Evidently, Jairus, he believed the master's command, gave him confidence. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John, and the father and mother of the girl, Notice Peter, James, and John were sort of an inner circle of Jesus' inner circle. Three times they get singled out from the 12 disciples, just these three for some special uh, observation. It happens here. It also happens when Jesus is transfigured in all of his glory on top of the mountain. And then it happens a third time. You remember where? In the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed the night before he was crucified. Again, Peter, James, and John went with him and were asked to pray. Well, now all wept and mourned for her. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. (laughs) In other words, her death is not permanent. It's just temporary. What an unusual diagnosis. Have you ever heard of a case of a temporary death? (laughs) In other words, that's what Jesus said was happening. Apparently, the Jews hadn't heard of that diagnosis either, and they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. In light of the diagnosis, we probably would have felt the same. But Jesus put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately. Jesus raised this little girl from the dead. It was a miracle. But notice before Jesus works the miracle, he first puts out the mockers. You know, sometimes your mockers are your smart aleck friends who question God's power. Oh, he can't work a miracle for you. Sometimes the mockers come from within. They take the form of your own doubts and cynicism. But miracles happen most often in the ambiance of faith, in an atmosphere of praise. That's why if you're looking for a miracle, first get rid of the mockers. Drive the mockers out, put them outside, and fill your heart with hope and faith. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. Jesus uh, not only raised her from the dead, but he gave her a meal. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Once again, this command to tell no one, this was primarily for crowd control. You know, if word spread that Jesus was raising the dead, my, oh, my, can you imagine the rubberneckers? The people that would want to come and have a look. And yet, do you think these parents obeyed his command not to tell anybody? How could they? How could you? How could me? Their little girl was dead. How could you not tell somebody? How could you not praise God? Well, chapter 9 begins, Then he called his 12 disciples together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now, people were flocking to Jesus, whereas it was Jesus' desire to take the ministry to the people. Jesus always wanted to take the ministry to the people. He wanted to strike while the iron was hot. He knew that the momentum was in their corner, and so this was a good time to launch out. And so here he commissions and empowers his 12 disciples. This is their first foray into ministry. And he said to them, take nothing for the journey, neither staffs, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics apiece. In other words, you need to travel light. Don't carry a lot of baggage with you. I like Peterson's paraphrase of this verse. He says, don't load yourselves up with equipment. Keep it simple. You are the equipment. Jesus says, whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. In other words, don't bounce around looking for better accommodations. It's not where you stay. It's it's what you've been sent to share that really matters here. And whoever will not receive you when you go out of that city, shake off the very dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And and here's another verse that still applies today. Don't linger too long where you're not wanted. You see, there are plenty of folks who want to hear the good news of Jesus. Why waste years? Why waste time knocking on a dead end when nobody's home while other people are excited about hearing the good news? Well, so they departed and went through the towns, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Verse 7, now Herod the Tetrarch heard of all that was done by him, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had risen from the dead, and by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the old prophets had risen again. And Herod said, John I have beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? So he sought to see him. You remember Herod Antipas had tried to get ahead in life by beheading John the Baptist. John had called him and his wife Herodias on the carpet for their evil lifestyle. And you remember, she had schemed against John. She had wanted to silence him. But now another voice from God is sounding. Jesus is on the scene and he's making Herod nervous again. You know, it's a good sign when God's servants make evil men a little antsy. It's been said, Jesus disturbs the comfortable, and he comforts the disturbed. Verse 10 tells us, and the apostles, when they had returned, they told him all that they had done. Remember, this was their first venture into ministry. And imagine their excitement. God used us. Their thrill was contagious. It is fun to be used by God. What what an exciting thing it is when God uses us. Here they couldn't wait to get back to the clubhouse and celebrate with the team. Even tell the coach what had happened. Well, then he took them and he went aside privately into a deserted place belonging to the city called Bethsaida. The word Bethsaida means house of fishing. Bethsaida was a little fishing village. It was located on the northern shore of the lake. "...where the headwaters of the Jordan fed into the Sea of Galilee." Now here the water is the warmest. It's the site of the lake's best fishing. House of fishing, a good place for a fishing village. But when the multitudes knew it, they knew where he was going, they followed him. And he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And he healed those who had need of healing. It seemed that Jesus sort of planned a debriefing for his disciples... After their time of ministry, they were primed for instruction. But the crowds now interrupt his plans. All of a sudden, there are masses that are wanting to see him and wanting to be healed. And of course, Jesus loved people. And so he took the time, he made the effort to minister to the crowds. And evidently, it went on all day long. For verse 12 tells us When the day began to wear away, the 12 came and said to him, Send the multitude away that they may go into the surrounding towns and country and lodge and get provisions, for we are in a deserted place here. The disciples were concerned. Verse 14 says that there were 5,000 men present. That means a wife and two kids. For each man, that's another 15,000 people. There could have been 20,000 mouths to feed. And this was a rural area. You could look as far as you wanted in both directions, not a Waffle House to be found.